0: lost to smile and the painter's
1: hand the trembling now Welcome to Radio Free Acton. my name is Mark Vandermoss. I'm your host and uh, pleased to have you along today on the podcast of the Acton Institute where we explore a whole range of different topics today we're exploring something that we have not looked at before on the podcast. We're going to look at art, the world of art, and specifically we're going to discuss the stewardship of art. How should Christians view art? How should they determine what is art? How should they use the talents and the skills and abilities that God has granted to them to produce art? Kind of an interesting question. And uh, one of the reasons that uh, we bring it up is, of course, it's, it's getting closer to fall here in uh, the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. This year, what we're looking at in Grand Rapids is the second occurrence of what they're hoping to be an annual event in downtown Grand Rapids called Art Prize. Now, if you haven't heard about this, what Art Prize is, is an art competition. What you would normally have in a in a gallery art competition is that artists would submit a piece of their work to be judged by a jury of art experts, and then of course when the the jury makes their determination, the winner would receive a prize. That's sort of the same uh, principle at work here in Art Prize. Except what happens with Art Prize is a it's much much bigger. There are hundreds and hundreds of artists who submit works they are displayed not in a gallery uh, the gallery so to speak is the entirety of downtown grand rapids uh, i believe uh, the, the art art can be displayed anywhere in the city limits of grand rapids michigan and the jury is not a jury of experts uh, or critics it is a jury composed of the general public uh, what happens is people come downtown they go to various venues view the art And then they're able to vote for pieces that they either like or dislike. You can vote things thumbs up or thumbs down. After about a week, the competition lasts about two weeks, two and a half weeks or so. After about a week, the uh, organizers will list the top ten vote-getters. And then you vote again, and the winner wins what is billed to be the largest prize in the world of art competitions, $250,000. That's a, a significant sum, to be sure. Now, the art prize contest, I can vouch for the fact that it's a lot of fun to walk around downtown Grand Rapids to view all this art, to be involved in the voting. It certainly is. It's a lot of fun. And it it last year brought tons of people to downtown Grand Rapids. It was amazing to see. And if you're in the area or able to get to Grand Rapids uh, the end of September, early October... I'd encourage you to come. It's, it's, it's very interesting to see all the different works of art and very interesting to, to be involved. The question that's raised, though, by art critics, by people in the art world, is are the artists who contribute to Art Prize actually producing art or are they simply pandering to an audience of uneducated people in order to win a large cash prize? It's a legitimate question, I suppose, and, and it's, it raises another question specifically for the Christian community. How do we view art? What is art? Is art anything that we make, or is there a more significant purpose to it? I want to take a moment and read uh, from a feature uh, from the Stewardship Study Bible. If you're unfamiliar with this product, it's something that the Acton Institute worked on with the, in conjunction with the Stewardship Council. Stephen Grable, who is the editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, our academic journal here at Acton, served as the general editor on this project. And uh, throughout the Stewardship Study Bible, there are features uh, spaced pretty evenly throughout called Exploring Stewardship, where they obviously explore different stewardship topics. And one of the topics that's explored, this one uh, from the book of Job, is uh, stewarding creativity. The passage that this teacher is referring to is Job 39, verses 5 through 18. So I'm going to read from this, and then we will get to the meat of the podcast uh, in just a moment. In the words of author Michelle Shea, creativity is seeing something that doesn't exist already. You need to find out how you can bring it into being And that way be a playmate with God. Now, playing with God, what an odd concept. It's especially jarring to present the notion in this solemn book of Job dedicated to the mystery of human suffering. If you wouldn't be inclined to pair God with frivolity in the same thought, the idea may even seem to smack of sacrilege. But consider a sampling of God's words to Job. From chapter 39, verses 5 and 7. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? He laughs at the commotion in the town. He does not hear a driver's shout. Or from Job 39, verses 13 and 16 through 18. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers and runs, she laughs at horse and rider. Or this from chapter 41, verses 1 and 2, and verse 5. Can you pull in the leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Can you make a pet of him, like a bird, or put him on a leash for your girls? Now as God describes his creation, note the colorful language and clever word pictures. It's even possible to see the subtle humor. God's attitude toward his servant's pain is certainly not flippant or facetious, but he does direct Job to think about incongruities and mysteries of life. Are you able to appreciate the glimpses of humor and joy that often punctuate life's circumstances, even the times of grief or sorrow? Seeing more than just the bleak picture is one way in which creativity brings depth to our experiences. When we allow ourselves to fully embrace the world as it is, often confusing, nonsensical, or contradictory, creativity helps us to make sense of the human condition. If God saw fit to incorporate humor, joy, and creativity into the natural world, doesn't it follow that he would take delight in our own use and appreciation of these elements of life? A cheerful heart is good medicine, writes Solomon, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. That's Proverbs 17, verse 22. The medical profession still prescribes a combination of humor and hope as the best medicine. That's an excerpt from the Stewardship Study Bible. If you would like to pick up a copy, you can do that at your local Christian bookstore. Or uh, simply head over to Acton.org and click on the bookshop link, and there should be one available to you in there. To help us explore these ideas of stewardship of the world of art and stewardship of artistic talent, I'm going to turn the microphone over to David Michael Phelps. Dave came in a little while back, and... Uh, moderated a debate between two participants in a controversy from our journal of markets and morality professor nathan jacobs and professor calvin Searveld. dave did a fantastic job for us and i'm going to turn the program over to him for part one of our podcast on the stewardship of art welcome to radio free act
2: the podcast for the Acton institute for the study of religion and liberty this is David Michael Phelps, sitting in today for Mark Vandermas, your usual host. A quick thanks to Mark and the folks here at the Acton Institute for inviting me in to moderate what will prove to be a very uh, edifying conversation, I'm sure, today. Uh, Today's topic on the surface may seem a, a bit out of the ordinary to those of you who follow Acton's work, but I think if nothing else, today's conversation will be an interesting thought laboratory. The topic is the stewardship of art and um, the Acton Institute has uh, in partnership with uh, Stewardship Council recently published the NIV Stewardship Study Bible that takes a look at the relationship of stewardship to all areas of the Christian's life and by taking a look at the stewardship of art I think we will find uh, that there's a great importance in thinking about Uh, the meanings and definitions of those things we look to steward and I think by uh, looking at the stewardship of art we're gonna find that the conversation about what something is and what it's for is very important. Now the role of uh, the arts and the importance of the arts is a topic that has recently peaked its head into the Acton Institute, notably in a recent controversy published in the fall 2009 issue of the Journal of Markets and Morality. This controversy sought to answer the question how should Christians be stewards of art. And it added to the complexity of the question, what is art, the equally complicated issue of stewardship. The two men who participated in this controversy are here with us today, Professor Nathan Jacobs, Assistant Professor of Theology at Trinity College in Deerfield, Illinois. Welcome, Professor Jacobs. Thank you. Good to be here. And also with us is Professor Calvin Seerfeld, Emeritus Professor of Aesthetics, at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, Ontario, welcome, Professor Sieverell.
0: Yeah, thank you for the invitation.
2: Before we begin, I I think it's important to note that uh, we're not going to rehash the entire controversy printed here, uh, printed in the Journal of Markets and Morality in this podcast. So for those of you listening I suggest that if you haven't read this uh, this exchange between Professor Jacobs and Professor Sievereld that you do so uh like I said it's in the fall 2009 issue of Markets and Morality and you can subscribe to this wonderful journal at www.acton.org um but before we get into the discussion between the two professors there's two things I'd like to do first of all both of you I uh I would like you both to give a a brief background of your work in these matters and your interest in these matters. Uh, and then after we do that, uh, I'm going to have an attempt at uh, giving a quick overview of, of both your positions as stated in the controversy. Uh, and we'll you know we'll make sure that uh, everyone's happy with what's been said so far. And then we'll sort of pick up where the controversy left off. So, Professor Seerfeld, I wonder if we can start with you, if you'd give us a little background about yourself and uh, how it is that you've Found yourself to be doing work in the issue and uh, issues of the arts.
0: When I began to uh, specialize in graduate study of aesthetics um, at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, this followed up uh, thirteen years of teaching regular philosophy at uh, Trinity Christian College in Chicago, where I could teach an aesthetics course now and then. But my interest has always been in both in literature and in music and in graphic art. And because of five very important years during my uh, dissertational training in Europe, where you could see art walking down the street in different ways with access to many musea, this kind of flourished. And when I came to work with graduate students, you could form a team in studying the theory of art. And for me, what's important also is the imaginative life of humans behind art making. Uh, which I consider to be something like play and fun and humor. Um, This is what's really helped me specialize in the concert of several colleagues at the Institute for Christian Studies who were in political science and straight philosophy, history of philosophy, educational philosophy, to assume also a kind of importance for the matter of how in the world, in God's world, should we be imaginative, and how can this indeed serve our neighbors? Very good, That's enough for you,
2: yeah, yeah, very good, thank you,
0: okay,
2: uh, Professor Jacobs. I wonder if you might also share with us a little bit about your background and interest in these uh, topics
3: uh sure actually um my my professional uh, my vocational academic. Uh, focuses more on historical theology, systematic theology. Uh, But prior to going down that road, uh, I was actually pursuing art as a practitioner. And so I spent uh, a little over two years off at art school uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, studying fine arts painting and drawing. Um, But it was also while there that I underwent uh, a conversion or reconversion depending on your theology, uh, returning to the faith as it were. And that raised for me a lot of questions. Uh questions concerning the implications of this theological shift, this worldview shift. Um for what I did as an artist. Did this mean that I now had to illustrate Bible stories? Did it um uh did it mean anything? Did it just mean I needed to stay away from certain, you know, uh negative morally negative features of art or something like that? Um, I pursued some answers from uh, f- from the writings of aestheticians but for myself i I seem to have this disconnect from uh, the world that I experienced as a practitioner and the world that the aestheticians seem to talk about and so I in many ways bracketed that question and groped around blindly um, having my my practices as an artist in some way disconnected from my uh, my theology uh, not knowing how to bring the two to two back together, Um, and it was really more in this study of theology proper that I started to find answers for what I was experiencing as a practitioner, some sort of grounding there. Uh, The grounding, as it comes out in this article, is largely from the Augustinian tradition, the idea that uh, there are such things as objective values, that there's something real uh, to which words such as beauty or sublimity refer And that started providing just an initial grounding for thinking about art in some sort of objective way, aesthetics in an objective way, which I was convinced was there uh, as a practitioner, but I wasn't sure how to articulate it or how to ground it. Uh, And then those explorations, those theological explorations were extended in some way uh, by historical study into issues such as iconography and looking at more of these teleological questions as far as the function of art and so on. uh, that was that was something happening behind the scenes in my theology because I was writing on very different topics, uh, but I had an opportunity to begin to bridge those two worlds when uh, I was invited to teach, uh, actually three years uh, in a row, I was invited to teach at Calvin College on this question of art and theology. And uh, in in that process, that's when I began to find uh, a very effective way of moving students through the thought of objective values and morality into the idea of objective values more generally, and then into the more teleological historical questions. And so what you see coming out in, in the article in this controversy piece is really an extension of that sort of journey from uh, practitioner into theologian, then you know back reinterpreting inductively, as it were uh my My experiences uh as a practitioner,
2: very good, very good, well, like I said, I don't want to in this podcast try to rehash the entire controversy, but as a launch pad for today's discussion, I think it would be helpful to give a quick overview of uh what the two of you wrote about in the journal and so what I'd like to do now is just take a few moments to summarize or attempt to summarize. Uh, where the conversation has already brought us and why it's important. And then I will allow the two of you to make any emendations to my summary as you see appropriate to make sure that I'm representing you, your positions fairly. So you'll forgive me in advance for any messy results as this layperson tries to summarize uh, two, two professional philosophers here. So, um, If nothing else, the exchange between Professor Jacobs and Professor Searveld reveals – the consequences of definitions and worldviews to the stewardship of a particular topic. As I mentioned earlier, when we asked how should Christians be stewards of art, uh, it becomes clear very early on that the term art has a significant amount to do with how Christians could steward that thing called art. Um, It also became clear that our two guests today take some different approaches to that question, not uh, the question how uh, how should Christians steward art, but also the question what is art, and whether or not these two approaches can complement one another is a topic for our conversation today. So I'll, I'll begin with where the controversy begins, with the position of Professor Jacobs. Professor Jacobs defines art in two ways, generally. First, he defines art within the artist himself as a particular cultivated property, skill, or perfection. And this property within the artist uh, like the values of art itself is an obje- has an, an, an objective value now secondly Professor Jacobs defines art as the object what we might more commonly refer to as art or an artwork that is quote artwork is the outward manifestation of the inward perfections of an artist end quote. so art is something whose values we can know objectively and this knowledge is something the Christian must have to be the best steward of art as he can be So, in other words, again, in order to steward something, you have to know what that thing is and what it's for. Now, Professor Jacobs seems to locate the meaning and purpose of art within the meaning and purpose of the human person, whose ultimate end is the glory of God. In other words, art isn't just something that exists for its own sake, but it is the product of a human person exercising particular faculties, particular skills or perfections. And at the end of the day, the final cause of art, the final purpose of both humanity and art is the glory of God. Now there are a million gradations in exactly how a piece of art may fulfill this final cause, but ultimately uh, the goal is the glory of God. It should also be said, uh, by the way, that Professor Jacobs suggests that the only way we can have a cogent conversation about the stewardship of the arts is to locate our definitions of the arts and the artist in a realist metaphysics. In other words, in order to speak about the meaning of something and the use and stewardship of something, we must operate under the assumption that art has a meaning, that its properties and values exist objectively. First of all, Professor Jacobs, is my summary a fair one?
3: No, I think it's a. I think it's a pretty fair summary, or at least as fair as a summary can be when you're taking these complicated issues and boiling them down to you know short few seconds. Um, yeah, the 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 bulk of my position is the idea that if we're going to talk in, intelligibly about art, if we're going to make um, some sort of intelligible statement uh, regarding. Um, regarding the nature or the function of art, or something, there has to be a referent. There has to be a real referent, and that's where, in terms of uh, trying to give some sort of objective grounding, I find some form of realism—be uh, it a, moder- uh, a moderate Platonism or I rooted in Augustinian—just because I think I think there's a, a Christian version of—I uh, I hate to call it Christian Platonism, since it's uniquely Christian—but nonetheless, realism. I think uh, realism provides uh, teeth for that sort of thing, and I think realism also points in the direction of teleology. Uh, the Gothic cathedrals uh, I had drawn out. Uh, they were fresh in my mind because I had very recently taken a, uh, a trip to, uh, to Germany and then over to uh, Strasbourg, and I would seen the Strasbourg Cathedral, which had made quite an impression on me. Um, it's... I, 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 I think some of the, the perfections that it draws out are the basic perfections by way of technique. Um, but I, I started out, one of the the spheres that I gave just a, a cursory evaluation to uh, was just the moral sphere. There are certain oughts and ought nots that clearly apply one ought not to create pornography, for example, certain perversions of art. Uh, clearly it, it passes the moral litmus test there. And then, by way of the objective value of it, um, staggering by way of technique, and yet added to that um, is also this teleology, the teleological function of liturgy, the teleological function of elevating the mind to the transcendent, communicating the transcendent, and so on um, but then combined with all that are also these Christian virtues, this u- these unique Christian virtues that in many way convey uh, the the virtue of the concept of the, the body of Christ. The fact that uh, there are innumerable artists, uh, many of whom are anonymous. We don't know who made this or who made that. Um, when we look at uh, the cathedrals and how they're done, the fact that um, the artists are so clearly working for God and not for own, their own personal glory or worldly glory because they would even give intensive labor and care to things that would be sculpted in places where no one would see them because the primary audience is God. Uh, And so some of those virtues and uniquely Christian virtues start to come out in the context of the cathedral. And so that's where it really struck me as, as the ideal insofar as it passes the moral test. It certainly passes the technique test. Um, it It brings forth beauty, it communicates the transcendence, so it has the teleology, and then added to that are these unique christian virtues and i th- and I think those those virtues of artists working together communally um, for something that 's beyond themselves and beyond their own personal glory is something that 's extremely rare these days in the art world. Um, I suppose in certain places where it comes close is maybe a film where the credits roll and and you never know who. Gaffer operator B is, uh, but so maybe that's a contemporary equivalent. Um, but for all of those reasons, I, th- I think it serves as a very cohesive um, example of the sort of uh, blending of these various virtues and perfections and spheres that I talked about in the article.
2: Now, Professor Searveld comes from the issue, uh, comes at the issue from a bit of another direction. He identifies the Christian stewardship of the arts as those creative activities marked by a redemptive spirit, uh, by those activities that, that help to bear the burdens of one's neighbor with hope, as he, as he writes. Art is not the manifestation of a particular objectivated, uh, objective cultivated uh, property, but rather, quote, art, uh, art is objects or events uh, produced by imaginative humans who have the skill to give media a defining quality of elusivity that brings nuanced knowledge to others? Who give the object inform intention attention? End quote. In other words, people are called by God to create uh, metaphors that disclose nuanced knowledge, and this activity is something that ought to help bring about God's kingdom, bring about uh, shalom, not by uh, creating works that shamelessly appeal to. Uh, the emotional likes or dislikes of a given audience, not by creating works that mindlessly reconfirm a particular dogmatic outlook on the world, but by creating works that make an imaginative difference that has staying power, as the professor writes, Uh, and staying power in the lives of the artist and in the artist's uh, neighbors, particularly. Now, I think it's fair to say as well that Professor Seerfeld does not locate the meaning and purpose and therefore, the stewardship of the art in the, in the dictates of a of a philosophical realism, but rather in the injunctions placed by God on man, and and we know these through the scriptures. And I should also note that Professor Searleval does not see his approach as anti-realist, simply because it doesn't grow from the same realist principles Professor Jacobs begins with. Uh, now, uh, what I would like to do is, uh, first of all, have both of you respond uh, to see if that's a, a fair summary. But I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you might do it in this way. One of the things that can happen when we discuss uh, philosophical matters and aesthetic matters is the jargon can get a little technical. And so, what I appreciate both of you have done is you've adopted, um, we'll say, artistic examples. Um, uh, Professor Jacobs, you took the example of the Gothic cathedral. Uh, as an example of artwork that does not glorify an individual artist but rather you know, bespeaks the greatness of God and, and points our attention to heaven uh, and lifts our spirit towards the transcendent even if the medium is the rocks of the earth. And Professor Sievel, you chose a sculpture by Britt uh, Wickstrom called the Cathedral of Suffering that portrays Three human figures, uh, the middle figure crucified between two poles and the other figures, one on each side, in postures of uh, human suffering as an example of artwork that informs its viewer by uh, creating an image, by by imagining uh, a particular knowledge that the viewer ought to have and as something that creates solidarity with the suffering. Professor Searveld, what about you? Anything to amend or add to that summary, or anything uh, by way of response you'd like to offer to uh, Professor Jacobs?
0: Yeah, I thought uh, your summary was was quite good. I might want to say that uh, rather than uh, be understood to be not for something objective, that... uh, I would like to take these ideas of God's creational ordinances, which are really our calls to respond to something which is beyond us as human actors, as uh, my way of getting at what uh, Professor Jacobs has for his philosophical realism. I mean, I really appreciated your uh, talking about, you know, there's a realist way to read me and an anti realist way to read me, because I'm not a nominalist subjectivist, as uh, you know, anything goes. So I think we, you know, on the same wavelength there, except that I don't want to ontologize. That is, I don't want to uh, give um, some kind of substantial status to God's creational limits, which are set for us, uh, which is what I think the realist position does, and turn these calls of God for me to be imaginative or to be just or to be moral or to be. Uh, um, good for the, the environment, I don't want to turn those into either intellectual reels, because they're not intellectual for me. These are God, God's call to me. They're not archetypical ideals that I have to strive for. They're not, quote, moral mandates, but they are indeed something which hold for me to respond to. So that's the, that's the elusive word about being objective or not. But you you were quite correct, I thought, David. Uh, in talking about metaphor, for me this is the, the quality, the objective quality, if you will, that an artwork needs to have to have fulfilled its structural uh, character to be an artwork done by an artist. Which, what, who is an artist? Uh, in, in my own judgment, I think we can all be imaginative and then I call artists really professional imaginators, those who then spend their time, get their skill training, and have the sense, indeed, that their art should be art, uh, whether it's indeed for the glory of God or whether it's not for the glory of God. So I don't know whether this uh, gets at uh, the problem of philosophical realism, which I find difficult to uh, take, but uh, through Scripture, uh, in its call of God for me to be imaginative as a creational ordinance, which I, as a human creature, need to then... uh, follow and obey and act with some kind of uh, imaginative subtlety in understanding what's going on in the world, both in dramatically or graphically or in song, for example. So just as I'm called to act with merciful restorative justice, because God asked me to, and to treat trees and animals with some kind of administrative care, I'm also called by the Lord, I think... And that means everybody is, even those who are not Christians, to respond imaginatively to the subtlety which is in creatures, and that this is indeed where art finds its task and place. Uh,
2: Professor Shearfield, I'm glad to hear you say this, because we're hoping to sort of start now that we're uh, in- involved in yeah. this, is with this uh, creational ordinance uh, to right. be imaginative that you speak of, um, yeah. this this uh, command, if you will, you know, be imaginative, um, Right. how do we... How do we know when we've done this? How do we know when we've um, got to the point where we have uh, sort of fulfilled this call or been true to this
0: call? I think this is something that one has to explore communally, and there will be different judgments on this. In other words, uh, the problem is, of course, um, how do I know when I have been just in my government policy? How do I know when I have indeed been deep moral in being faithful to my friend? Um, The way one knows, at least the basic thing is, is in the communion of the saints who are indeed infused with the Holy Spirit, that you, by the struggle of both hearing the God talk in the scriptures and in perusing the whole history of artworks, come to some kind of tentative, leading idea, and uh, uh, imperative, so to speak, of now this indeed is an artwork which follows the ordinance of God that we should be imaginative and aware of being significant for our neighbors. So that one would talk about is the Gothic Cathedral, is the Cathedral of Suffering I talked about, our precious moments, which we both mentioned, uh, is the Vietnam Memorial, are these artworks that are truly qualified objectively by what is imaginative? And then we, we would have different judgments on that. Professor Jacobs uh, maybe doesn't think the Cathedral of Suffering has the kind of metaphoric intensity which makes it an artwork, and then would say, no, uh, that's not one. In my judgment, it is one, uh, and it's not something that is uh, just my feeling about it, but it's my, indeed, attempt as somebody who wants to give leadership in what is indeed imaginative to say this would indeed draw people in and give us a sense indeed of the terrible thing we need to be repentant about and still leave it, as it were, ambiguous and subtle so that I can indeed not just see a man being crucified the way Christ was, but then become aware of the fact that there's suffering going on in the world that needs our attention. And it's done imaginatively, not dogmatically.
2: Very good. Well, uh, Professor Jacobs, um, in the controversy, you. You you criticize Professor Seerfeld for not having a, a systematic position of the metaph- metaphysical grounding of art, as you say. But let me ask you, as an artist, is why is such a thing necessary either for an artist or for an art critic, or maybe most specifically for a, for a, a steward of the arts or, or one desirous to be a steward of the arts? Does do any of these people need um, that understanding of that metaphysical grounding? in order to discuss art meaningfully or to steward art meaningfully?
3: Um, well, I do think it's quite necessary, and I think the reason is because um, teleology plays an integral part in stewardship. Uh, let's let's bracket art for a second. It was mentioned how you steward uh, animals or plants, uh, care for the earth or something like that. Um, I would say a more traditional view, whether it's patristic or medieval, I th- uh, that's how I'm sort of using more traditional in that sense, uh, more scholastic traditional uh, view. Teleology is, is is integral to that question, and so in order to know how to steward an art, I have to know something about it, or not, I'm sorry, transition back to art. If I'm going to know how to steward um, an animal, I have to know something about its nature, and to know something about its nature, I also have to know something about its teleological ends. Um, and, and only when I know those things can I properly be a steward of it. I'm stewarding it towards something. I'm stewarding it in keeping with, uh, its nature as something. And without those, uh, stewardship really becomes, I I would say, a vacuous term in which it's in some ways arbitrary, arbitrary in the the literal sense of arbitrium, me just doing something that I will because I will it, um, without uh, a grounded reason, um, now I, I think there there was also raised here uh, the the issue of of epistemology and ontology, so there seems to be a concern of uh, of being tentative there 's a concern for us communally groping uh, f- for you know something and working through these things uh, on on those points I, I would I would just raise two additional considerations. the first is in terms of the epistemological question i can 't help but th- think of c s Lewis. Uh, In The Great Divorce, there's a conversation between a ghost and a solid person. If you don't know what those terms refer to, you can pick up the book. But uh, this conversation between these two individuals, uh, one of them is emphasizing that the search is what matters. Uh, And the other replies, well, if, if if, if there was nothing to arrive at, and it could be known that there's nothing to arrive at, how could we search with hope? Uh, and that's where I think the ontological grounding that we're moving toward something uh, is quite important for the grasping uh, after something, because otherwise we're just we're just groping in the dark after nothing. And we all know that we're groping in, in the dark after nothing. But the groping is the thing. Uh, I'm I'm not satisfied with the groping as the thing. And, Could I ask? You? Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, right. uh, and, uh, well, and then there's the just the ontological point that I think even if you even if there's the even if the epistemological point were granted that we can can 't be certain that we 've arrived at the something or we can 't be certain that this person 's judgment is right that this is art um, it 's always important to not confuse epistemology and ontology. Uh, the question of whether or not the teleology of the thing is knowable whether the nature of the thing is knowable is an entirely different question than whether the thing has a nature or has a teleology
2: Professor Sievel
0: yeah, I was wondering. Um, I don't beg. May I call you Nathan, or should I call you Professor Jacobs?
3: <laughs> um, you you can call me Nathan. I'm I'm trying to get, get chummy here. So that's... <laughs> what I would
0: like to ask is if if the if the work the, the supposed artwork is not stewardly, is it still possible an artwork, or is it, are you not an artist if you are not a stewardly artist?
3: Well, I, on that question, I think there this is this these are some important nuances that I, I wish. If uh, I wish we had more space to explore in the article because this was right. a very cursory, high-flying survey of these questions. Um, there's certainly such a thing, if terms like good and bad art are going to be meaningful, for example, then there has to be poor stewardship of art. And so that's where I'm, I am convinced that there's such a thing as poor stewardship of art and things that are, um, are, 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 in a sense, bad art. I'm also convinced that there are things that might be labeled bad art that are just not art. Uh, and so I can, think I can think you give that, me an example of that? Okay, well I, I would say, for example, um, I would say Maplethorpe is an example of poor stewardship of art because it has, uh, at least in much of Maplethorpe, it has a sort of perver- er, perverted twist to it, and yet it can't be denied that Maplethorpe is a brilliant photographer. And so in that sense, what in terms of the ontology, what we have here, we do have art, we do have this person who has cultivated this skill set and this perfection that's being manifest. But, and this is the very Augustinian part, where evil is considered a privation or a twisting of something. You first have to have the something. I'm convinced we have the something. Uh, But I'm also convinced that we have the twisting and the perversion of the something, and that's the privation. Uh, And so in that sense, that would be an example of bad art or bad stewardship of art. Uh, maybe if you're asking, uh, it would depend on how you're using the term in terms of, you know, is this bad art in the sense of bad skill. Uh, certainly it's not that. But, um, but, uh, but then there might be others. I encountered plenty of folks at art school who I'm convinced just weren't making art. Uh, no, precisely because they, <laughs> they, had, they didn't have any skill sets of any kind, such as to raise their practice to the level of art. And so that would be an important nuance that I think is worth drawing out.
0: Right, because you mentioned, I think, in your article about the increasing rarity of artists properly defined. Mm-hmm. That's why I was wondering, you know, I mean, I think there are many artists, indeed, who are both immoral and who are unstewardly, who, as you're just trying to say, do have and meet the skill set or the quality mm-hmm. of making art that is still artwork. Yes, Yes. So I'm with you on that, too. In other words, about and about the stewardship, in your terms, it was to kind of cultivate the perfections germane to artistic craft.
3: Mm-hmm, right. And to
0: me, in my terminology, I'm saying we need to have the, the faithful implementation of the appropriate resources to beget shalom, so that we're both wanting to be stewardly. I think that's where, again, together on that. Yes. And then it, the problem is... Um, uh, if one is not stewardly, one is indeed still very possible to be an artist.
2: Yes, I agree. I agree. When I was uh, at a conference in Manhattan uh, a couple of years ago, I got into an argument with a fellow who uh, seemed to debate this point with me, saying it. You know, what we would say, being stewardly with the art was not the matter at all. And we 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 posited the possibility of having. Would you rather be a, a saint that? couldn't paint or a a devil that could Uh, well ideally you'd love to be the saint that could paint right right
1: that concludes part one of our podcast on the stewardship of art keep checking out the acton institute power blog we'll post the second portion there for your enjoyment next week again thanks for joining us on radio free acton We'll see you next time for part two of this podcast on the stewardship of art.
0: And if she's out there running wild, it's just because I taught her to